Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 16, produced 7 November 2015. When it comes to great railway journeys, Scotland ranks right up with the world's best. Whether a tourist seeking the romance and nostalgia of yesteryear, found on a steam train like the Jacobite, aka Harry Potter's Hogwarts Express, or a commuter using the rails for daily transportation, for example along the newly opened Borders Line, getting around by train is still one of the best ways to see Scotland. The beauty of trains is, they're not just about getting from point to point, They also provide a wonderful opportunity to stop along the way, have a cup of tea, and see the places less traveled. Places with their own story to tell, like Dalmali Station, found here under the Tartan Sky. Here in Scotland, 2015 is the year of food and drink, a celebration of the country's outstanding natural larder and produce. From artisan cheeses and world-renowned whiskies to succulent seasonal berries and arbroath smokies, there's an abundance of delicious regional flavours round every corner. Discover the landscapes, people and culture that make our food heritage so unique and enjoy a feast of events and festivals throughout the year. Come and experience a true taste of Scotland. If you like riding the rails, traveling by train, Scotland has no shortage of great rail journeys. I've been fortunate to make two memorable trips by train there, on board the Jacobite steam train, the Hogwarts Express, from Fort William to Malig, and on the Strathspey Railway, through the Highlands from Aviemore to Broom Hill. I can highly recommend both. Scotland has a rich railway heritage, and it continues to embrace that even today. Just recently, Her Majesty the Queen officially opened the new Borders Railway, 30 miles of rail from Edinburgh to Tweedbank, returning train service to the Borders for the first time in nearly 50 years. And next year, 2016, We'll see the unveiling and a host of public events celebrating the most famous of locomotives, the Flying Scotsman, after its near-decade-long 4.2 million pound restoration. But not all of Scotland's rail history lies in the engines, cars, and rail lines. Much of it can be found in the communities, buildings, and, yes, train stations alongside the tracks. Here, under the tartan sky, I'd like to take you on a railway journey of a different type. We're on our way to Dalmali, a small village in Argyll and Butte, sat just near the tip of Loch Awe. Established by the first Lord of Glenorchy, Sir Colin Campbell, it is today a popular tourist destination, featuring the ruins of Sir Campbell's Kilchurn Castle, St. Conan's Kirk, and more. It's accessible by the A85 
or by rail along the Glasgow to Oban line. Ours is a journey to Dalmali Station, left unmanned and decaying for over 30 years, but now being lovingly restored and revitalized by Graham Waite and his recent bride, Liz Gaffney Waite. Graham is a native Scot, born in Argyle and raised on a farm where, as a boy, he bought and sold lambs. Liz moved to Scotland some 30 years ago with her first family. There she learned felting and eventually met Graham, and today, the couple, wed only months ago, are busy with a unique and very personal restoration and preservation of the place they now call home, the Dalmali Railway Station. Before we begin, a quick program note. These interviews with me in the USA and my guest in Scotland are conducted via Skype, and sadly there are sometimes minor glitches in the audio quality. You may notice a few in this episode. I can only apologize for those failings of technology and hope they don't detract from your listening enjoyment. So let's get on with our visit to Dalmali Station. We begin with Liz sharing a bit more about the history of the station and rail service to Dalmali. 1870 was when the railway station was built to come to Dalmali. It stopped at that point and the connection had to be made between Dalmali and Oban as a link line. It was a line that was always built primarily as a tourist line, even back then when they did take a lot of materials and they took all the animals, foodstuffs, post, everything back then travelled by train. Um, Later, just before the 1890s, they connected the line right through to Oban. So that was a wonderful thing for people to be able to come all the way from Stirling Uh, on the calendar open line. At the moment, everything's changed because this line is called the Glasgow open line, but originally it wasn't built that way. And it never, there was never a connecting train from Glasgow back then. Sadly, it was in the 1950s when the Beechin project uh, axed one little part of the railway where there was a very slight landslide and they closed the calendar open line. However, they just re-diverted the line that had been built from Creen Larrick and they connected it back up with our line. So this is a working line. It's been a constantly open line as a working station, even though it wasn't habitated for 35 years previous to us moving in. Um, We get about 11 trains a day on a good day and they start the first train starts at six o'clock in the morning and the last one finishes at 20 to 10 at night so most of the things we do around the station here are all governed by train times originally uh, when we moved there wasn't very much activity around here people didn't hang about they would come in and go out and there wasn't much interaction But since we've moved and we've opened up and we've been living in spaces, we've been communicating very much with people. There's always a cup of tea on the go for anybody who's traveling to and fro. It's opened it up as a a great meeting place for people. So we get people who come specially just either go for little walks around here or they just want to drop in and see what we're doing with the station. So if it was a working station all these years, how is it that it came to be abandoned for those 35 years? What happened? 
the maintenance work wasn't done to upkeep the buildings. And I suppose the whole system of the railway means that now you don't have a station master. So there isn't the necessity to have an employed person here to oversee the station. A 1983 would have been the crux to all of that, which is when signalmen, the signalling system used to be a handheld system where uh, the token was a physical token in a little leather pouch that was handed to the train driver and there was an exchange of tokens and that allowed them the freedom to go to the next portion of the line where they would exchange another token. Um, that all became electronic in 1983, which meant that the signalman's job, as well as the station master's job, was now redundant. There was no more employment for them. There was no necessity for them. So subsequently, there was no one needed to live in the station for a job that just wasn't there anymore. Um, it meant that the place fell into disrepair. Nobody was that concerned about it. In fact, there was mentioned several times of demolishing the site. Uh, we're very, very glad it didn't. And it now has full protective status, both for the railway building itself and for the Victorian canopy on the front and the signal box. So hopefully for all of posterity, it'll be preserved. Graham, what led you to have an interest in an abandoned railway station? Well, the railway, they sold all the property off, and British Rail sold all the prop excess property off at auctions. And they used to go to the auctions just to see what they were making and to buy property off them. And in this auction, there was one in Glespin, Glespie, further up north on the Inverness line. And they wouldn't sell it at the price I bidded for it. Then this one came up afterwards and I bidded on it. But you had no and, intention of buying it before you went? Well, not really. I thought it was would be very expensive. Were you in the market? I mean, were you looking to buy a place, buy a, a home, or was this just, or are you a modern day, uh, what we over here in the States call uh, a flipper, where you buy a property, fix it up, and then sell it at a profit? Uh, well, I like this one. I like the look of it. So I wanted to keep it for myself. You do then buy other properties and sell them on? Is that part of what you do? Well, not really. I usually hang on them and rent them out. I don't really agree with buying them to sell them to make money out of them. I think you better have keeping them till you retire. Then you can sell them. Then that's a pension fund. Sure, sure. You didn't go to the mart to the auction. I'm sorry with the intent then of, of actually buying Dalmally Station that day? No, that, no. It was really Glespin I was going to go for. Glespie. And Glespie was another railway station. Yeah, another railway station, yeah. yes. <laughs> are there a lot of these types of stations that are or have been sold off and are now in private hands? Yes. Well, it was British Rail at that time that was selling them. During that and period of time, there was quite a lot sold. There was a lot sold yeah. at that period of time. Then after that, they stopped selling them. Shortly, maybe next two, three sales, they actually stopped selling them. They changed their policy. Well, well Dalmally is a little exceptional because it's a, a stone building, which is very unusual for a railway building. Uh, the previous one up the line would be Tynault Station, 
And that had been privately bought and was being run as a brewery? No, no, it was rented. It was British oh, Railway Oh, they still owned it, okay. And it was leased out to a brewery. Okay, so that yeah. was in that particular case. And then it was taken over as a museum, but sadly it burned to the ground. At the moment, I think... Um, there is a great impetus to use the buildings. I think the whole foresight that they um, have now is much, much better than it was at that period of time. They've done places like Ladybank where they normally they lease out. They don't normally buy or sell. That's now a different system that they work. But they are trying to occupy the buildings and they are seeing the potential of businesses being able to use those buildings because obviously there's a through traffic of people. So there's inventive ways that they have used stations around Scotland. There's two or three interesting stations. Well, and that's part of my question is I'm trying to get a sense of, to me, a railway station is the type of place where if it's the beginning of your journey, you, you go into the building, there's a ticket office, you buy a ticket to where you want to go. And there's a waiting area. You sit and you wait until the train arrives. You get on the train and away you go. If it's the end of your journey, obviously the same thing. You just you transit through the station. It's intriguing to me that what I perceive to be happening here is that Dalmali station is it's a stop on the line. And yet it and there must be others, apparently, but they're not train stations per se. They are, like in your case, your home and your shop, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but they are businesses. So do people arrive on the train, get off, come in, do some shopping, wander around, get back on the train and leave? I guess if we weren't as sociable uh, as we are, it could be seen as two separate things, because essentially it is the train transport goes on as our neighbour, uh, so it's on the platform where we have tables and chairs. We go and we eat our breakfast on a nice day or have a meal or somebody comes along and visits. We make them a cup of tea. We'll sit out with them. I'll work quite a lot under the uh, glass canopy because in the inclement weather up here where it rains a lot, it's a perfect outdoor space that's protected. So there's always a lot of activity on the station now, and that's caused a lot of interest with people passing on the trains. We get a lot of people who've seen us on a journey that they've made and have either driven back or come back and allowed enough time to come in and see us. So sometimes it isn't that initially people will come to here as a destination, but they see this des destination as a point where they can come back to. There's always something seemingly going on on the platform so it's it causes interest so the station itself though is the is the platform the building is your home and your shop is that the, the distinction then there's a portion of the platform that uh, belongs to us okay. that allows us to work in that space and obviously all the rooms on the platform all the annex rooms that would previously have been waiting rooms or the posting room used to take all the mail for this whole area. So all of those rooms actually open onto the platform. So any activity within those rooms is visible for people coming through on the trains. It's a difficult one, Glenn, because it takes a lot of people by surprise from the point of view that the concept is that a railway station is a public building. Right space so we get people every single day lots and lots every day 
become to use uh, public convenience because they see it as being a public railway station. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful for business because it gets people to pop in. What it's difficult with is any door that's left open on the station, people come in looking for that space because they don't know it's a private. They, they can't comprehend that the station which is there with the platform is somebody's private dwelling space and their private business. Um, but that's fine. We understand that. We see that surprise in people's face every day when the realisation comes to them. And if we weren't sociable people, I think maybe we might find that difficult. But we are. We love it. We love how that brings in and out in the interesting people we meet from day to day. So it's difficult to get your head around because it's quite an alien concept. Um, it is a, a private house, a private station with an active railway station with no lines of delineating one from the other. One flows naturally into the other. So, Graham, tell me a little bit about when you became the owner of this station, what kind of condition was it in and what type of work have you had to do and what type of work is ongoing to refurbish the station and turn it into a, a new home for the two of you? Well, the property is in such a state, it was only some of the outside leaf standing in some of it. So there was great big stones and that that had fallen right to the to the bottom, you know, fallen off the walls completely. So they had to be carted up the stairs and put back up again. Because they used the original sandstone that fell down, I put it back up. So you'd roof to do, your drains, gutters. Really, it was just a shell. I could try to keep as much as possible of the original building so you didn't lose the character. It would have been a lot quicker just to cut the whole building and restart, just start fresh again. But I thought that was a sin. But it would have been quicker and cheaper. Because when you tried to keep the character, keep the plaster and lath and redo it all like that, it's a heck of a time. And you can't get tradesmen to do the work for you now. Because they're all kind of lost. They're, you know, they're all dead now, really. It's an old building with old methods. Um, and a lot of the new tradesmen just don't have the experience in these type of buildings. It's too slow for them to do the job. And they don't want to spend the time. They just don't have the pride in the work that they used to have. So are you doing all of this work yourself, individually? Do you have friends or other uh, employees of any type that are working with you on it? Well, mainly myself. We've had other help, but they kind of come and go when there's, you know, when they don't have any other work, they'll come and give us a hand. Tell me a little bit about the the community of uh, Del Mali and have they embraced what you're doing with the station? How, is, how has this whole project been received? Uh, well, the locals originally wanted it, after bought it, they wanted it as a railway museum. But they had no money for the museum, they had no money to do anything about it. But I wasn't interested in selling it. Then I was offered money by a family that wanted it as two family homes. And I wouldn't sell it. 
So I, th I think initially the community felt um, that you were a property developer because that was the concept that people had of it. And in the same way as you asked the question, Glenn, um, one of Graham's initial ideals was to have it as um, accommodation for walkers. And in fact, he had planning application accepted for, for it as that. And I think local people felt it was taking too long for something to happen, not realizing quite how damaged the building was. There was nothing wooden that what didn't either have damp, wood rot, woodworm, um, everything was, floors were gone. There were no windows intact. So the enormity of the work that had to be done, I think, wasn't visible from the outside. And the railway's way of dealing with it was to board up all the, the hollow windows so people couldn't see that there was actually activity inside. I think initially maybe there was a little bit of misunderstanding as to what the whole building and the whole concept we had for the building was. But it's lovely to now see that uh, people are coming, they're, they're bringing us gifts of plants. Um, they can see how alive the railway station is. It's taken some time, it's maybe taken a good two years or so for people to visibly see the changes and attitudes to change that little bit. So it's now a much more community focused place. And so how is the repair work going? Are you now living in the station? Is it now serving as your home? We've been living in it for three years. Oh. Sometimes quite basically, but, um, and obviously when we moved up with the business, that portion of it needed to be functional so that the business could continue running because that was part of what was funding the changes that we were making. Uh, it was a huge step to get all 44 windows, which the windows are... What's the dimensions of those windows, Graham? Uh, they're a metre wide by 2.3, 2 2.4 in height. So very big windows, and to have 44 of those to go in was quite an enormous task. But once that happened... Uh, light came into the building. It was almost like the building got eyes again. It, it was a lovely point. And I think when people could see that those major changes were being made for the better of the building, it really did make a, di a big difference. So let's talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned the business is helping to fund this renovation. And that business is your business. You're in the Am I saying this right? The um, felted textiles, is that the correct term? That's correct. Okay. So tell me, and, and you mentioned that you and Graham originally came together by you using his wool. Tell me about your business and um, the decision to move it into the station, and, and that is a part of this whole project. Graham and myself had been dating for a few years, and I suppose our initial friendship grew a lot deeper and Graham had taken a great deal of interest in what I was doing and I really, really enjoyed being involved in the sheep side right from birth right up to whenever they were sheared. So for me, we both looked at the idea of 
get in a farm together where there was space for Graham's animals, but also space for me for my business, which I had run from my home before then. Um, we looked at lots of different properties, at lots of different places, and there was none that had what both of us needed. At that same time, uh, we were traveling up and down at every available moment to try and do two days here and two days there at the station here. And that was very, very difficult because you weren't listening to what the station needed. You were trying to do too much at one time. And I guess we just slowly realized that we already had the perfect space. Uh, there wasn't maybe as much land here as we would have liked to have a few more animals for Graham. Um, but from a position point of view, so we chose the station to live in it to get the feel of what was right for the building. And we gave it a go. So that was three years ago. And I think the two of us have fallen in love very much with the building, fallen in love with the area. And we're both very, very happy here. Now, your business is Heartfelt by Liz. Tell me about that part of your life and what this business is. The business is very much to do with the journeys up to this point. I have previously trained, I have a degree in floristry, which was a wonderful medium to learn about color, to learn about uh, natural growth of things. But it didn't stimulate me enough. And I discovered felt making when somebody showed me what wool could do under friction and moisture and how it shrunk and became a totally new fabric. That excited me very, very much. Felt making still has that magic appeal to me. You can take all sorts of different types of sheep's wool and other materials, merge them together and do something totally unique that nobody else can create, possibly even you can't duplicate. Um, so each thing I make is definitely a one-off creation. When I met Graham, I was at the, the cusp of quite a big occasion, and that big occasion was I was asked to represent Craft Scotland to travel to Philadelphia for the Philadelphia Museum had their annual show and Scotland was the chosen country to be represented there. 25 artists uh, went off to show their creations, uh, I suppose, to the nation as such. And I hadn't known Graham very long at that stage. I was using his wool and I made the conscious decision that I would like to try and use the wool that was local to me, which was Graham's wool, to dye it with local plant materials within a three mile radius of where I lived at the time. And Graham became very involved in the process with the, the likes of the birch leaves that we dyed with. Graham had collected all those. If there was barks that needed uh, boiling up, Graham was there. Um, so he, he was very involved in that process of creating the materials so I felt it was only right that he should go to Philadelphia with me also. And that was a big step for me and a realization that actually we make a really good team. So the two of us had a wonderful time at Philadelphia. And it opened up, I suppose, the whole idea that there's a whole audience out there who are interested 
in very bespoke, very organic, um, handmade items that are quite unique. We have both been staggered, I think, by how well received Dalmali Station has been as, um, I suppose, a new groundwork for Heartfelt by Liz. I did think initially that Heartfelt by Liz would be the main consideration, but I've been ousted by the station and the station itself predominates. <laughs> uh, and that was a little cultural learning point for myself, a little humbling. And I love the fact that the two have become integrated so well. So we now have dye beds for growing local plants at the station. So not only do they look pretty, but they're practical. And we use all the local farmers' fleeces. So we're using predominantly British fleeces and as local as we possibly can. So you have a portion of the the building is a, I'm going to describe it as a retail shop. You can correct me if that's, if that's incorrect, because you do make items for resale. I know you do bespoke items as well. But you're also, I see on your website, doing teaching workshops um, and things of that nature. Uh, do you have enough to do? I mean, do you have any spare time, Liz? <laughs> well, we, we don't have television. <laughs> um, we do work very hard. We work full on. Um, Graham's an early riser, so he's often up by four o'clock in the morning. I tend to work in the evening because... That part of the day when you have people coming in and out, it's often hard to focus on your work. So I'll choose to have little trays of things that I can sit and talk, but I can still stitch. Um, so it's changed the way we work. The teaching part is the part that has really surprised me. And it used to be 50-50, but probably at the moment it's maybe 70% teaching. What's lovely, though, is that as this is very fluidly developed and, you know, people say to me all the time, oh, what's your two-year plan? What's your five-year plan? Well, we don't specifically have a plan. We would like to see the station finished, <laughs> um, but it's very fluid. And it seems that the spaces that we have outside that we're almost at a stage of finishing, um, we would love those to be accommodation for people who are coming and traveling to the workshops. People seem to love the whole experience. They, it's not just that they come to learn about textiles. It's the fact that they come to learn about textiles in a very quirky setting, in a very beautiful area. And just all of those things seem to work together to have a very unique experience for people. So can you give me an idea of, um, of the type of products that you make for resale and or uh, some of your bespoke items. Uh, take me a little bit through the process of the, the sheep's wool to the felting to the finished product. There's a wide range of products, but to give you maybe a little um, taster of some of the things, tomorrow um, we have a workshop taking place. It'll take place out on the platform because we'll be using raw fleeces. That means cut off the back of the sheep, not yet washed. So we'll be working with um, water and hot water and lots of soap and I'll be teaching people how to use the native fleeces that we have here to create rugs that are washable. 
So we'll be putting a false skin of wool and we'll be felting that wool on using water and friction. So people will go home at the end of tomorrow with a washable fleece from a local sheep that they can, they've uniquely made, but that it's something that is very usable either as a seat pad, maybe something to walk on. So we create a lot of those, maybe 50 or 60 different um, types. They're mostly from Hebridean, which is a little small black local uh, sheep. We have some Jacob, which are the, the spotty ones. And we have in the railway station yard, we now have uh, some North Ronald Seas, which are those beautiful little sheep that live on the seaweed in the island of North Ronaldsea. And we have a pet lamb as well, which is a, a cross of a black face. So there's lots of different materials locally that we use. That's just a very basic range. On the other side of things, um, we make very bespoke wraps. And what I mean by a wrap would be something that's worn over a jacket over a, a beautiful evening dress or a jacket and it's like a scarf that can be wrapped around the body but it looks like a jacket in its own right. These are really really popular um, maybe for very special occasions but I find that they look very elegant on ladies and often ladies of different age groups need something to I suppose deflect um, either from body shape, which they may not be happy with, uh, maybe they're getting a little bit older. So they're looking for something that's a little bit unusual, that makes them feel good. Uh, and it's lovely how we incorporate all sorts of things from tartans, which we had in the wraps for our own wedding. Our bridesmaids wore the same tartan as Graham had in his kilt. And Often I'll work with uh, some of the local places like Donnelly House in Oban, which is a very old home where they found what is the oldest tartan they reckon woven. And they've just created a new tartan called Dalriada tartan. And for that, for the catwalk, I've incorporated pieces of that tartan in the clothing that I make to make very bespoke garments but something that's quite wearable, not anything totally outrageous. So I'm a very practical artist and I like whatever I make to be able to be used every day by women, whether it's functional like the rugs or whether it's for a very special occasion um, like the wraps. And of course, there's lots of things in between. And so you have a private home that you're still renovating. You have your shop where customers can come and go either by auto or by train, obviously you have your teaching. And as if uh, I was only half joking when I asked, do you have any spare time? Because if that weren't enough, you're also very actively involved in trying to recreate, collect and archive the history of Dalmali station. What part of you, uh, of the two of you has an interest in, in collecting all of that history and preserving that about this station? Um, that's an interesting question from the point of view that a lot, accidentally. Of, accidentally, a lot of people have asked, 
why a railway station? You know, are we interested in trains? Are we interested in the mechanism of the trains? I would say, yes, we've become more like that. Um, however, the word anorak is often used loosely for people who are totally interested in trains. Where it comes to numbers and where it comes to the special speak that uh, people who are fascinated by trains are involved in, I glaze over. I've learned an awful lot. I'm, I'm fascinated by that side of it. But it's the people that really are important to me. And from the historical point of view, it's also the people that are most interesting to me. What clothes do they wear? What were the little stories? Uh, just yesterday, we were taking little anecdotes from a gentleman who used to work on the railway and, in fact, was the last person to live in the old Barracastlin village, which is a medieval don over the hill. And unfortunately, when the railway station was built here, the village then changed status and this became the village area built around the railway station. But this particular gentleman was filling us with uh, hilarious stories about some of the things they used to get up with as children on the railway line. So it's that side of it that really fascinates me. The people stories, the real life stories, how life was then, what they wore. But to do that, I had to be able to speak to people and jog their memories. And we went back through all the station masters, right up to the last station master. And we're now working out from that, who were the plate layers, who were the signal men, who were the men who worked part-time here, uh, how about their families? There's some amazing stories uh, and they're coming up all the time. You know, people who have worked out of here during the Second World War, there's one particular lady, she's 94, and she had gone home having made a little visit here, quite a nostalgic visit, and she'd written three or four pages on her memory of working out at Dalmally Station. And her family wrote to thank us to say that how wonderful that was for her to be able to have a focus for those memories. Um, that's the important thing for us, to get that information before the people die. It's information, it's the little stories, it's not any huge big thing, but it's important to those people. And, and it gives us information as to how the life was led back then. We've forgotten so much. And the station certainly has an interesting history. I was just looking through a bit on the website and reading about, I think it was the first station master where his daughter was born at the station. And then you had a newspaper article where there was a murder nearby the, the station. And then, of course, the two of you were married on the platform there at the station. Uh, so Dalmali Station has certainly seen a bit of unique history in its um what, uh, since the 1870s, and, and it's a quite considerable lifetime. It has, it has indeed. And I think bringing it to life again, there was a wonderful uh, station stone building across the track, which is now just uh, trees overgrown, it's all overgrown. And that was an, a magnificent building. It was a structure which we have photographs of with a big turntable. So in its heyday, this, this station was the hub of Dalmally. This was where life was. The post office was here. There was a jeweler. There was so many cobblers. Now, 
what's actually happened is that the village has been split into two halves where they've taken a new community centre, a new pharmacy, a new post office, and that's all been placed in a different portion of the village. So effectively, it's a village of two halves. And hopefully bringing a little bit more life to the railway station is meaning that we're going to keep this part of the village alive. Is it, in a sense, bringing those two halves closer together? I think so. I think that's uh, little things like the school train leaves from the station. So all of the children come to the station every day. They can use the train to go into Oban, which would be their nearest interesting town to visit. So there are lots of activity here. But before, I don't think people interacted. There wasn't any way that they could socially interact here, whereas now people will come and they'll sit on the benches. They'll sometimes meet their friends here. We have quite a lot of local people come and have a cuppa and a little chat. So there's always something going on here, whereas previously in the last 35 years there hadn't been. So it's, it's very exciting to see that change and to see people's interest in it. And you mentioned that you, you have no specific two-year, five-year, ten-year plan, etc. When you say people come in and stop for a cuppa, and I'm assuming uh, that you're probably uh, the one who's preparing and sharing that cuppa, you, you and Graham, by that I mean, is there any consideration for perhaps having something like a tea shop or a chippy shop come in and be a part of the station? <laughs> well, we, we laugh about that. Um, we have done occasions at the station where we'll do, for, for instance, for Christmas with other local people, and we, they will do a little what we call a pop-up cafe. So for a period of time, they'll come along, we'll give them the space, and they'll run a little cafe. Generally, it's for um, a charity. There's quite a lot of restrictions on running a, a food business, and that's something neither Graham or myself would like to have to oversee. But we're very open for anybody from the community to be able to have a space here if that was how they would like to, to do it. It's crying out for somewhere for a little recreational place for people to be able to come and use. But we do know that we are so involved in so many other things that we physically can't do that ourselves. But we're very open to other people to come and do do something like that here. So we're talking about a, a place that has a tremendous history. And you guys, in essence, are writing, the two of you are writing a new chapter in the in the long history of that station. I know this may be a difficult question to consider for a moment, but look forward perhaps to the time when you and Graham will no longer be here and be at the station. Um, what do you hope people would take away from uh, both now and in the long-term future, take away from what you've accomplished and what you've done with Dalmali Station? I think for us, we've we've certainly put our heart and soul into the building um, some people come and shake their heads and think we're absolutely, totally crazy because to work the hours we do and, and do the jobs we've done, but we can look back already even in the last three years and just see the momentous changes. We can feel happier of an evening to know that the building is now no longer in danger of falling down. It's structurally sound 
It's wind and water tight, so there'll be no ingress of the lovely Argyle weather. Um, <laughs> people see this as a beautiful space again. And one small plan we do have, and we always had, was the signal boxes, yes, still belongs to um, British Rail. And we have put in a requisition for either the lease or the purchase of that to be able to make uh, a small museum. Um, we've been given some lovely artefacts for various local people. And these artifacts are very precious. So to have somewhere to house them, we're both members of uh, Dalmali Historical Society. And there's a whole archive of historical interest of the lands around Dalmali. And there's no present home for that archive. So we would love to consider that possibly the signal box might be the perfect home for the future for that. So we do have a vision, I suppose. It's just maybe we're not restricted by having to have a yearly accountability to the progress of the place. My thanks, as always, to my guests, Graham and Liz Gaffney-Waite, for sharing with us a glimpse into their busy lives and their ongoing work to restore and preserve historic Dalmali Station. On a personal note, one of the joys this podcast brings to me is the opportunity to meet and chat with Scots like Liz and Graham. I always seem to learn a bit more about Scotland in the process, and I hope you do as well. Until next time, when my guest will be Lisa Henderson, joining me for a chat about her tourism review business, Must Visit Scotland. I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalave. Agus Alifa Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. Learn more on our website at www.glennlmoyer.com. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening.